So, who wrote Psalms? David was one of the authors, but to many people surprised, it was not just David. It was also Moses, Asaph, and others. Uh, others included Solomon, was one of the main people. Uh, obviously, David wrote the majority of Psalms, but he was not the only writer of Psalms. He was speaking to the people of Israel, <coughs> and this was written between... Um, 1450 and 450 B.C. Uh, no, David did not live without the years because he was not older than the Ezra, you know, he died. But the records that are recorded in Psalms do date back to um, 1450 B.C. Uh, so Psalms is Psalms is Songs of Praise. So the Psalms are songs of prayer and of praise. Many were written to be sung as expressions of faith and worship. Uh, the Psalms reflect the passion of the true worshiper and express the full range of human emotions 
as we enter into God's presence uh, and seek his help for daily living. For those of you that may not know yet, obviously, I love worship. I love praise. Uh, there's a reason that every Sunday, every Wednesday, every chance, every opportunity, we get to be in the house of God. You'll see me usually being the first one up to the front or among the first up to the front to worship God. I'm not doing that for show. I'm not doing that to try to bring recognition to myself. But I've learned something over the short time that I have been alive. And it's simply this. No matter how my day has gone, no matter how my week has gone, no matter how the last 30 minutes of my life has gone, something happens whenever I begin to praise and begin to worship God. The Bible says he inhabits the praises of his people. And that was David speaking whenever he said that. And uh, a few chapters later, David said something that I think is pretty cool. And many of you have heard me say this before. He said, so long that I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to be praising you. So what he was saying, to inhabit, means that God literally dwells in the person that is praising him. He lives there. He dwells there. So what David was saying is, so long that I'm, is that I'm alive, I'm going to be praising you. And because I pray, I'm praising you, I expect you to live inside of me. Because you inhabit the praises of your people. So that's something that I've learned uh, throughout my own study, throughout other people's teachings, and simply through life experience. Something truly happens that changes everything. It changes your attitude. It changes your mindset. It changes your situation, your circumstances. When you begin to completely throw out everything that's going on around you, because it's hard. But don't pay attention. Don't think about what anybody else may think about you. And whenever you start to praise and worship God with love and with passion. God inhabits those praises and he'll begin to do a change in you. Uh, so Psalms is divided up into five different books. Uh, Psalms 1 through 41 is Psalms of Man and Creation or Songs of Man and Creation. And this reflects the book of Genesis. Uh, the second book of Psalms 42 through 72, chapters 42 through 72, is uh, Israel's redemption, which reflects Exodus. The third book of Psalms, 73 through 89, is Psalms of Temple Worship, which reflects Leviticus. And the fourth book of Psalms, 90 through 106, is Psalms of Our Earthly Journey, or Numbers. That's the book that it reflects. And the fifth book of Psalms, or 107 through the last chapter, 150, is Psalms of Praise and Worship of God, which reflects the book of Deuteronomy. So within Psalms, there are different songs, and within those songs are different types of songs. Just as we have love songs and praise songs and worship songs, and somebody help me out with some different kind of songs. We have a bunch of different songs, just as we have those. Within uh, the book of Psalms are different types of songs. So we're going to kind of run through those real quick, the literary forms of the Psalms. So the first are the hymns. And much like the hymns that we sing today, can anybody name an old hymn? First thing that comes to your mind. Anybody? Come on. Amazing Grace is an old hymn. Uh, Amazing Grace is an old hymn speaking of God's grace, obviously, and the amazingness of God's grace. Uh, so hymns are song of praise that focus on the Lord's eternal attributes. And his great acts in creation and history. The two basic features of a hymn are the call to praise and the reason that you are praising. Uh, one of the greatest hymns that everybody knows is Psalms 150. Can anybody quote any of Psalms chapter 150? Anybody? I, uh, I'm going to get there and y'all are going to know it. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. There he is talking about God's uh, great acts in creation of history. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. That is one of God's eternal attributes. He, he is great. He is excellent. He is a mighty God who does mighty acts. So what David is doing here is he is, that is a hymn. He is singing unto God a song of praise. And he's focusing on God's eternal attributes, something that never changes. God is great, and he's great forever. God is excellent, and he is excellent forever. And David realizes that, and he keys in on that. Um, and, of course, his great acts in creation, where David says, praise him for his mighty acts. So that is a key 
scripture or a verse, uh, multiple, multiple verses, uh, that is a hymn. Uh, the next one is a lament. If you all have heard of the book of Lamentations, that is a book of laments unto God. Laments are prayers offered in times of trouble, pleading for God's help, intervention, and deliverance. Every single time you repent, you are praying a lament. That is the same thing. A, repent, a prayer of repentance is a lament. Uh, they offer they are offered by individuals facing personal distress or by the entire community when experiencing national calamity. Psalms 51. Uh, anybody remember David's sin with Bathsheba? Where we all know the story. He saw Bathsheba. He took Bathsheba. Um, he and Bathsheba had a baby. Bathsheba was married already. He had her husband killed in battle. So after that happened, David was praying. He was lamenting to God. In Psalms 51, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. That sounds a whole lot like a prayer of repentance, right? So that's what a limit is. Um, not only is it repentance. In this instance, David is praying that, he would deliver, that God would deliver David from himself, from his flaws, from his failures. But it can also be a prayer of deliverance from the evils of others. Uh, especially back in those days, whenever war and battle were constant with the Israelites, there were times that the, that the Israelites made laments unto God, saying, God, deliver us from the Philistines, deliver us from this battle, deliver us from these hands, uh, from the hands of the enemy. And also times even that they would lament unto God for God to deliver them from God, because they had sinned, they had done something dumb. And God was sending persecution upon them, so they lamented God, God deliver us from your hand, from your, from your, as brother, uh, who was it that preached about the left hand of God, trials and temptations. Um, so lament is basically when someone is praying into God to deliver them from something, to intervene in their time of trouble. Uh, the next psalm is Thanksgiving Psalms. Thanksgiving psalms are prayers <coughs> expressing thanks to God for specific answers to a prayer or for deliverance from danger. The lament, what we just spoke about, is offered before the deliverance. God, deliver me from this. And the thanksgiving is offered after the deliverance has to happen. Uh, psalm 66, through, uh, verses 13 through 15, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth have spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with incense of rams. I will offer bullets with goats and Selah, what David was doing. In Psalms chapter 66, you remember in Psalms chapter 51, he was praying that God would deliver him from the sin that he had committed. Well, between this span of time, God did deliver him. So David was offering praise or offering thanksgiving um, in a thanksgiving psalm. And the way he offered thanksgiving was to make the burnt offering, which was uh, what they did in that time. So the next one will be Psalms of Confidence. The Psalms of Confidence are expressions of trust in the Lord and praise to the Lord for the security he provided to those who trust him. There are times that we are not confident in, our, confident in ourselves. But I always like to turn to um, probably very well-known chapter in Psalms, Psalm chapter 23. Does anybody know or can quote any part of Psalm chapter 23? I did it earlier. Um, that's one of my favorite things to, to do whenever I'm not confident in the abilities that I have or I'm not confident in the situation that I'm in. Um, they, these, these verses are representative examples of the Psalms of Confidence and metaphors of God's protection and security are and they are especially prominent in Psalms chapter 23, 46, 62, 91, and 125. Psalm chapter 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. David goes on to say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shallow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Though I'm scared, though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear because you are with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come from me. 
Um, so that is a psalm of confidence, not confidence in myself, but confidence in the God who created me. The next one is Psalms of Ascent. Uh, psalms 120 through 134 are songs of praise the people sang as they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. These are sometimes called Hillel Psalms. The one who trusts in the Lord is as secure as Zion because the Lord surrounds him, or surrounds his people like the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. Uh, Psalms 120 says, In my distress I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. Basically, this is praising God because God is a protector. God will always be there watching you. He will always be there leading you and guiding you. It's praising God because he is greater than your own abilities. He has the abilities that we do not have. Uh, the next psalms are royal psalms. These are uh, prayers that celebrate the special relationship between the Lord and the house of the Davidic king. The house of the Davidic king, obviously, that's David, which ended up Jesus came from that Davidic line. Uh, the Lord chose Israel as his royal priestly people through whom he would mediate his presence and blessing to all people. And he chose the house of David to rule over those people, to rule over Israel. Psalms 89 verses 30 through 32 is a royal psalm that says, If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. What uh, God was saying to David at this point, he was assuring David, if these people do not respect and follow the law that I have given you, the king, and that you have given the people, this is going to be the consequences for that. He was ensuring David that he is the king and that he has power through his kingship. Which leads us to the next psalm which is kingship or enthronement psalms. Uh, while the focus of the royal psalms is the human divinity king, the theme of the kingship, kingship or enthronement psalms is the Lord's kingdom rule over his creation. The expression, the Lord reigns, <coughs> or God reigns, uh, appears in chapter 93, verse 1, 96 and 10, 97 and 1, and 99 and 1. Uh, Psalms 95 and 3 declares that the Lord is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. Uh, my favorite kingship verse from Psalms is probably chapter 47 where it says, O clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord most high is terrible. I know that sounds crazy. Why David was saying that was because two uh, other nations to the Philistines and all these other people that they were battling against, they would look at God and say, he is a terrible God. He fears, fills us with terror because they went against God, and God, of course, helped the Israelites destroy them. But David goes on to say he is a great king over all the earth. He is uh, a king, the kingship psalms. Uh, the next psalms are the wisdom psalms. Uh, like the book of Proverbs, <coughs> the wisdom psalms often teach practical lessons about everyday living. The wisdom psalms teach the value of living a godly life by focusing on the central importance of the law of God and the uh, contrasting ways of the righteous and the wicked. Uh, this is often a format of blessed are the righteous or cursed are the wicked. Um, and that's basically the format. I'm sure many of you have heard those. And Jesus actually spoke in the same manner whenever he would say, Blessed are this person, for they shall inherit this. Um, so that's the wisdom psalms. The next psalms, final type of psalms, is the imprecatory psalms. Uh, these are prayers of extreme emotion and anger calling on God to bring severe judgment on the enemies of God. And of the psalmist. Psalms 35, David says, Plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. David was in a time in his life where people were going against him. They were fighting against him. And I personally have seen a pastor um, pray an imprecatory prayer uh, unto God for those that, have, that had gone against him. And God answered that prayer. And it actually resulted in the person who was going against him died. Um, so, true stuff. But David said, plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me, fight against them that fight against me. 
because they've realized that I, in my own self, I can't fight these people. There's nothing that I can do that will cause them to stop coming against me, but God, you have the power um, to fight my battles. <clears throat> in conclusion, Psalms portrays the person and nature of God through the use of metaphor and imagery. The Lord is a warrior. He's a shepherd. He's a redeemer. He's a rock. He's a refuge and a shield for his people. And Psalm and, and David in Psalms calls God all of these things. He calls him the warrior, the shepherd, the redeemer, the rock, the refuge, and the shield. But I, something that ain't in my notes, but I just want to throw in there, is you can look in Psalms and throughout different books of the, of the Bible in the Old Testament where God is called a warrior or a shepherd, a redeemer, a rock, a refuge, or a shield. And it's crazy to me because usually it says something like he is the only shepherd or the great shepherd or he is the only rock or he is the only one that can redeem you. But you can look at the New Testament, if any of you have questions about oneness, and it turns around and calls Jesus this very same thing. And you can go back and forth where God in the Old Testament is the Redeemer. God in the Old Testament has all the glory. God in the Old Testament uh, is, is the great shepherd. Well, then you can go back to the New Testament and say, well, Jesus was called these very same things. So, if you ever get in a discussion about oneness, that's something that you can throw out of people. Uh, the Lord's kingship is eternal and absolute. He is worthy of, pra- of worship and praise because he is the great king over all Anybody have any questions about Psalms? Loads of questions. Moving on to Lamentations. Brother Seamus, what is a lament? What does it mean to lament God? Anybody tell me what a lament is? Huh? I did. What is a lament? Lamentations is uh, a book about laments that Jeremiah specifically made. Uh, author is Jeremiah. Recipients were the Jewish refugees. The date was 586 B.C. And um, this is a book about Jerusalem is burning. That is your letter B. Like, Jerusalem is burning. The book of Lamentations is a series of five separate laments over the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The intensely emotional nature of the book indicates that the writer experienced, the writer being Jeremiah, experienced these events firsthand. The first lament or uh, poem that tells us this lament is The Morning Widow. This poem portrays Jerusalem as a grieving widow mourning her destruction. Jerusalem's lovers and friends refer to the nations she depended on for alliances. She trusted in them rather than trusting in the Lord for her protection. But suddenly they abandoned her, so she was reduced to slavery. The next uh, lament is the weeping daughter, the story of the weeping daughter. This lament faces the harsh reality that the Lord himself brought about the destruction of the daughter of Jerusalem. As the divine warrior, the Lord poured out his anger on the city and even abandoned his own sanctuary. The poet wept over the suffering and death all around him and encouraged the people to give full expression of their grief to the Lord. The next lament is the afflicted man. This first person laments describes intense suffering with vivid emotion and metaphors that were representative of the community or all the people around him. The Lord relentlessly attacked him by ravaging his body, confining him in a dark dungeon, mangling him like a wild animal, and shooting him with arrows. The Lord gave him bitter food and drink, broke his teeth, and then trampled him under food, underfoot. The piling up of metaphors reflected the intensity of his afflictions. Uh, the individual probably is the personified city of Jerusalem. So what this lament was, was Jeremiah praying into God, saying, God, he was speaking on behalf of Jerusalem, not on behalf of himself. And he began to explain to God a man that was attacked by God, 
that was ravaged, uh, that he was thrown in a dark dungeon, that he was mangled in this dark dungeon by a wild animal, that God was shooting this man with arrows, that after all this happened, God gave him bitter food and water to drink, uh, broke his teeth and then trampled them under his feet. And God was saying the same thing, or Jeremiah was saying what I just described happened to this man is what you have allowed to happen to our city. So I was praying God, to God for deliverance from these afflictions that they were facing. Uh, Tarnished gold is the next lament. This poem <coughs> contrasts Zion's glorious past with its deplorable present. Jerusalem was the perfection of beauty and the joy of the whole earth. But the city was ravaged by war because of the Lord's judgment. The next lament is the fatherless child. This poet called for the Lord to remember those that survived the fall of Jerusalem and to intervene on their behalf. Judah forfeited the land given to them as an inheritance from the Lord, but the lamenter petitions the Lord to restore his people. In conclusion, in the midst of hopelessness and despair, Jeremiah offered hope and the promise of a new beginning for Israel as the people of God. Jeremiah prophesied that the Lord will bring the Jews back to their homeland, restore the Davidic dynasty, and establish a new covenant that would erase the failures of the past and guarantee Israel's obedience and blessing. Anybody have any questions about Lamentations? Now on to the fun one, Song of Solomon. Has anybody in here read Song of Solomon? We've read one chapter of Song of Solomon. This is a good one. Everybody put on the grown up here. All right, so who wrote Song of Solomon? Solomon. Wow, y'all are smart. <laughs> who is he talking to? I found this interesting. The young people of Judah. This is not a young people book of the Bible. Um, but nevertheless, that's who he was talking to. He was talking to the young people of Judah. In fact, in almost every one of the books that Solomon wrote, he was speaking to young people, as we will find out. He wrote this <coughs> between 970 and 950 B.C. And the Songs of Solomon are the Songs of Love. That is your be uh, like Song of Love. I basically uh, sing these to my wife every single day. Just read her the whole book of Solomon. That's how I got her. Is I just began reading her the book of Solomon. Solomon. She fell in love with me, and the rest is history. J.K. That didn't happen. Okay, Song of Songs. So Song of Solomon's Songs of Solomon is often referred to as the Song of Songs. Um, the Song of Songs teaches that love. Romance, sex, and marriage were created by God to be enjoyed within marriage between a man and a woman. In this sense, the Song of Songs serves as a model for martial relationships. Martial just means relationships, married people. Um, for all of God's people. Huh? People that are married. That's what martial relationships Okay. Okay. Perhaps the greatest benefit the believer can gain by studying the Song of Solomon's is the reminder that love is a gift from God and should be enjoyed as a gift. What God has created and declared as good should be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Romantic courtships. The song, uh, this song, chapter 1 through chapter 3-ish, uh, this song immediately begins with the female voice Expressing her strong desire for romantic affection. That's exactly how our relationship started. Uh, Jessica just came to you. She was like, you don't know how bad I'm with a husband right now. That's, I'm telling you, I promise. That's, that's not what happened. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him. Jessica said, just as the psalmist said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Thus setting the tone. <laughs> That's in the Bible, y'all. This is all in the Bible. Uh, thus setting the tone of lyrical love language that escalates throughout the book. And it does escalate. However, while desire for intimacy is clearly communicated throughout this courtship section, 
The lovers, listen, the lovers show restraint until the wedding night in fulfilling their physical desires. Somebody say amen. Amen. Somebody else say amen. amen. Say amen, Harley. Amen. Okay, here we go. Ravishing. Somebody say ravishing. Intimacy. That's chapter 3 and 6 through 5 and 1. <laughs> what did you say? Lock up in Jesus. Okay, we got to get through this. We're going to be here all night. The shift from courtship to marriage is indicated by the picture of a great wedding processional that lasted 13,000 years in a accompanied by the extravagance of royalty that lasted like 12 seconds and then we ran to the car and went to the airport and we're gone. Sorry, that was my wedding, not this one. Anyways, a great wedding processional accompanied by all the extravagance of royalty. In this processional account, Solomon is identified by name and the identification that this is a wedding procession is clear. Solomon praises the beauty of his beloved on their wedding night and expresses the depth of his love for her. The consummation of the marriage is expressed in delicate metaphor so as to celebrate its sensuous beauty with taste and elegance. There is no hesitation in the invitation of the beloved now that the wedding has taken place and the fulfillment of sexual intimacy is unrestrained and celebrated as a gift from the Creator. Next section, Royal Marriage, chapter 5 and 2 through chapter 8 and 4. The third segment of the song opens with another dream sequence where the beloved is separated from her lover. Oh, no. However, she regrets this separation and affirms her love for him through renewed praise over his appearance. As usual, what happens whenever people break up 14 bajillion times, they end up saying, oh my goodness, I actually do love him or her. Blah, blah, blah. To the prompting of their friends, dear God, this is literally not going to heaven. Let me just reread this. Let me just reread this. The third segment of the song opens with another dream sequence where the beloved is separated from her lover. However, she regrets this separation and affirms her love for him through the renewed praise of his appearance, through the prompting of friends, the lovers are reconciled and the growth of their commitment is reaffirmed in full. I am many, I am my loves, and my love is mine. Epilogue. It is a fun book. Epilogue, chapter 8, verses 5 through chapter 14. <laughs> Uh, Y'all want to keep going? (laughs) Although, it's in the Bible, okay? This is not me. This is the Bible. Although the poem expressing the power and value of love functions as the climatic conclusion to the song, the song continues beyond this through a flashback affirming the purity of the beloved prior to her relationship with Solomon and a restatement of the lover's desire to be possessed by each other, the lover's multiple desires to be possessed by each other in the coming years of their marriage. In conclusion, as lyrical love poetry, the Song of Songs exalts the virtues of love and evokes the emotions that run deep in the attraction God created between the sexes. As wisdom... Literature, the Song of Songs teaches God's people how to express their love to the one whom they commit their hearts and bodies in marriage. Somebody say marriage. marriage. All right. Yeah, that's over. That was a lot less momentful than I thought it would be. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Proverbs. All right, so we're going to take some time on Proverbs because I love Proverbs, and all of you need to leave tonight and go read Proverbs because it will help you out. A lot of questions that people have about stuff that they don't think is in the Bible gets answered in Proverbs. Tons of questions. So if someone ever says, hey, this is an okay thing to do, and you're like, I don't know about that, go to Proverbs and they'll tell you whether it's okay or not most of the time. So Solomon and others, I don't know who the others are, but Solomon and others wrote Proverbs. 
He was writing to, again, Jewish students of all ages. And he wrote this between 950 to 700 BC. And Proverbs is words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. The Proverbs are wise sayings that express deep truths in capsule form. They tell us how to live life successfully. Their focus is actually earthly rather than heavenly. They talk about how you should live your life on earth. First section of Proverbs is Discourses of Solomon. Then you go into Proverbs of Solomon. Then you go to the sayings of the wise. You have this on your paper, so I'm not going to go through them all. Those are all the sections. Okay, so the first thing that is discussed, not the first chronologically, but one of the things that are discussed in Proverbs is marriage and sexuality. One of the most important choices people can make concerns their potential marriage partner. Somebody say amen. All yes. oh, y'all need to listen up. The book of Proverbs contains timely advice regarding the value of marriage, its moral responsibility, the traits of a good partner, and the quality of true love. Don't come up with your own traits you want to see in your partner without first consulting the book of Proverbs. Uh, martial faithfulness comes with, this is things that, that Proverbs teaches. They teach martial faithfulness comes with wisdom, and the benefits of sexuality are a blessing. Somebody say, within marriage. Yeah. The folly of infidelity contains many pitfalls and temptations that can lead to the destruction of one's marriage, health, and life. Great caution ought to be ought to accompany one's choice of a spouse as a protection against living unhappily with a contentious person. It is better to choose a spouse based on their character than on their outward experience and uh, or outward appearance, not experience. And I am going to leave all of marriage to Brother Solomon to talk to y'all about because I've only been married for a very short right under a year, so uh, I don't have a lot of experience in that. So, we're going to go on to wealth and poverty. Proverbs contains a balanced view of wealth and poverty. Some people are poor due to misfortune, while others are poor due to laziness. Some are rich because of greed and corruption, while others are blessed by God and their own diligence. Lazy behavior, I can't stand lazy people, Lord Jesus. Lazy behavior results in poverty while... Di wow, right? I don't think so. Lazy behavior results in poverty while diligence results in wealth. However, poverty may also result from corruption and injustice. A degree of practical security comes with wealth. A degree of practical security comes with wealth while poverty results in numerous pitfalls. However, the security, of wealth provide, the security that wealth provides is limited. Furthermore, wealth even may become a liability. In a world where injustice is common, favoritism often benefits the rich. Profit comes not only as a result of hard work, but also from wise planning. Meanwhile, haste leads to poverty. Great wealth without the peace of God has little benefit. All those things are taught by our brother Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Moving on to the power of the tongue. The tongue can be a powerful instrument for good or for evil. The Bible says that the power of life and death lies in the tongue. Uh, one finds that Proverbs presents a balanced, balanced and realistic perspective on the power and the use of the spoken word. It teaches that spoken words have tremendous power to encourage and to discourage. However, even encouragement needs to be measured. Spoken words have power to lessen and to heighten tension and strife. The ability to refrain from speaking is a mark of wisdom. Dear God, help me to have that ability. While hasty speech may result in ruin. Furthermore, it is better to listen with discernment 
than to speak with haste. The Lord abhors lying, slander, and gossip. Hates them. Can't stand them. Principles on child rearing. I'm going to go ahead and let Brother Solomon go ahead and speak on this because I know nothing about that and don't plan on it for a while. <clears throat> the book of Proverbs is especially helpful in providing advice on raising a family. In Proverbs, child rearing is a family affair and discipline begins in the home. The responsibility of raising children is as great today as at any time in history. And Proverbs provides God-given wisdom on a topic relevant to today. Proverbs teaches on personal discipline. The book of Proverbs consistently presents the sluggard or lazy person as a fool and the diligent person as wise. Various traits of the diligent and lazy are explored as are the rewards of diligence and the consequence of lazy behavior. Friendship. Everyone listen to this one. The book of Proverbs it, uh, places a high value on friendship and relationships between neighbors. Knowing how necessary it is to have a good friend by your side in the time of trouble, one may learn from the book of Proverbs how to gain friends and how to be good friends to others. <clears throat> Due to the influence of one's friends, it is important to choose friends wisely. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. It is better to have few friends who are dependable and loyal than many friends who are not. That is something you will learn very quickly whenever you grow up. A good friend is dependable during times of adversity, while poor friends are quick to distance themselves when needed the most. I can't remember who it was, but uh, in a message I heard, a preacher stated this. He said, the closer you get to the cross, watch Jesus, the closer you got to the cross, the less people were around him. Started with 12 disciples, and one by one they began to leave him as he made his way to that hill. And once he got there, all he had was two people that didn't really want to be there anyways. So the closer you get to the cross, the less people you have around you. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to the relationship with Jesus, the less friends you're going to have. So don't be surprised if in five to ten years, for some of you, these friends that you have right now, this group you have right now, if you keep your life straight, pursue God above everything else, those friends are probably going to, some of those friends are going to drop off. So I was told by uh, my bishop a long time ago, Brother White, that I need to start finding friends that had the same desire that I had and create the same anointing that I had. And since then, I've tried to do that, and I believe every one of you should and are doing that right now. In conclusion, the book of Proverbs emphasizes the fear of the Lord as the key to wisdom and knowledge. While Proverbs focuses on matters of earthly living, it reminds us that God is the ultimate source of truth. <coughs> wow. Moving on to Brother Job. Who wrote Brother Job? No one knows who wrote the book of Job. Nor do we know when it was written. Um, but the recipients are to all believers who are suffering. And brother, or, uh, letter B is going to be questions of suffering. So why do bad things happen to good people? This is a question for the ages. Every single person on earth will face this question sooner or later. Many of us have faced it right now or are facing it right now. Those who have not had their own experiences in suffering know someone who definitely has. So when bad things happen, when life happens, many want to ask, why me, Lord? Uh, in the opening chapters of Job, uh, the narrator introduces the reader to Job, a man whose righteous character is affirmed three different times in the first two chapters. He is described as a wealthy man from a distant land, the greatest man among all the people of the East. Job is also said to be a whole lot like God, and I'm sure we can all recall this story when Satan comes up to God 
says that the sons of God were meeting, and Satan comes up to God, and God says, where are you coming from? And Satan says, I've been going to and fro to find someone to challenge. And God actually throws Job under the bus, and this is all happening in chapter uh, 1 and 2, and says, have you considered my servant Job? I'd be kind of mad at uh, God if I was Job, but he did it nevertheless, and Satan says, yeah, I have to put a protection around him. And if you just take away that protection, then he'll curse you and he'll die. So first God allows him just to touch the things that he has because he will be blessed. He has many children. He has uh, many animals. He has a big house, money, all this stuff. So Satan takes that away. Job never curses God. Uh, and then Satan says, okay, well, you put a heavy protection around him, so take that away. Let me touch his body. And uh, Satan puts boils all over Job's body. He gets sick. And still, Job never curses God. Um, so, from chapter 3 to chapter 27, we see a dialogue happening between Job and his friends. Um, Job makes a lament in chapter 3. It silence between Job and his three friends. It introduces the dialogue that follows. Uh, Job curses the day that he was born. He questions why would God allow him to be born if his only plan was to bring him to a place with such intense suffering. Uh, the first cycle of speeches, chapter 4 through 14, it's, um, so there's three speeches, and the poetic dialogue is in chapters 4 through 27. It's a literary masterpiece that communicates the full range of emotions experienced by Job. Um, <coughs> the interlude or a poem of wisdom happening in chapter 28. It deals with one of wisdom's most pressuring questions, the apparent inequity of divine justice and retribution. Again, bad things happening to good people. Uh, so Job, Elihu, and God, these are monologues that all happen at the end. First, it's Job, and he concludes his speeches by reflecting on his life before his suffering. And by contrasting that with the plague of despair that now accompanies his every hour. With one last affirmation of his innocence, Job challenges God to judge him honestly, even suggesting appropriate punishment for various sins. And yet in all of this, Job affirms that he is innocent of such iniquities. Elihu, who was uh, Job's friend, he, his speeches begin with a short narrative. Com ah, sorry. Commentary introduction of a young man, Elihu, who up until this point had been in silence. <clears throat> Elihu was angry at Job for justifying himself rather than justifying God. And he was also upset with his free, three friends that had spoken against Job because they had found no way to refute Job, yet had condemned him. So finally we get to Job, the, God's response to Job in chapters 38 through 41. At long last, the Lord replies to Job and brings clarity concerning the misconstrued theology of the three friends, and more particularly the misconceived accusation of injustice mounted against God by the son of Job. The main point expressed through God's speech is captured uh, by Job chapter 41 and verse 11. Who has a claim against you behind us? Everything in the heaven and the he doesn't explain the rationale for the reason behind Job's suffering. He doesn't reveal any compulsion uh, to justify his actions before Job. He just reminds us that all that he did to Job, he did for a reason. That he is God and we are not God. He is the creator, we are not the creator. And finally, Job replies to God in chapter 43, and he repents of his long-headed thinking and the fact that he spoke of things. Uh, and he spoke of things that are truly wonderful for him to know. If God's ways are not our ways, they are higher than our ways. And some of the things that God does are too wonderful for him to know. In the narrative epilogue uh, to the book, Job is vindicated. His health is restored to him. The three friends are condemned for their false accusations. And Job is called upon to serve as a priest and pray all for the as for Job's restoration, God promises him once again blesses him with twice the wealth. Scripture clearly affirms that suffering means 
But it can also be permitted to, by a loving God, prove that his grace is sufficient for our everything, just as Paul states. In the end, the main point of the book is knowing that God is just even for people who don't understand the Thus, we are called to trust God. of Ecclesiastes explores the basic issues of the meaning of life and the expressions of human love. It speaks to issues that are of vital importance to young people. Why am I here? And does anyone really care? Has anyone ever felt like that before? Uh, it is split up into the following sections from the prologue to the postscript. And he speaks on these subjects. First, he speaks on the vanity of life. Uh, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is uh, a scripture that Quillette, who is the king of that time, uses in Ecclesiastes. Uh, vanity, futility, meaningless, or worthless, Thirty-eight is used 38 times in this book. It is the Hebrew word hevel, literally meaning vapor or mist. The metaphor of futility, hevel, is used throughout Ecclesiastes to describe various aspects of life experience in a fallen world. These things include fleeting, sometimes senseless, even absurd aspects of our earthly existence. The Bible says that life is but a vapor. It's just here a little bit and then it's gone. So don't spend your life in vanity worrying about the things that make you look good. Spend your life serving God. Uh, the next subject speaks on is life under the sun. The expression under the sun is used 29 times to refer to the activities of man as observed and experienced from a human perspective. Uh, <coughs> the writer is not overly pessimistic in his assessment of the fallen world. He is simply realistic and observing life from a human perspective. In other words, life without God. This perspective reveals the random emptiness of human existence. It speaks on the value of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is written from a wisdom perspective. Although the writer acknowledges the limits of wisdom to provide any lasting solution to the fallen condition, he nevertheless upholds the value of wisdom. He speaks on the sovereignty of God. Throughout the book, the writer recognizes that a sovereign God rules over the affairs of mankind and the mortal man has little power over his own fate. He speaks on the inevitability of death. Uh, as the writer observes the life under the sun, he cannot escape the reality that death is indeed coming. The inevitability of death highlights the transitory nature of mortal life. So this adds a somewhat depressing tone to Ecclesiastes. He then speaks on the enjoyment of life seven times. The writer concludes that life should be enjoyed to its fullest, although he uses the word joy 17 times, so the enjoyment of life is not a, mere, um, a minor aspect of the book of Ecclesiastes. And then finally he speaks on remembering God. Although the writer realizes that the wisdom does not have uh, the capacity to explain fully the ways of God to clearly understand that wisdom demands a reverence for God. Life is brief. Death and judgment are surely coming, so a wise person will acknowledge his creator all the days of his life. Moving on to <clears throat> Ruth. Key facts. It is written by an anonymous author, possibly Nathan talking to the Israelites, and it was written from 1020 to 1000 B.C. And Ruth is about a ray of hope. 
we're just going to move real quick to Ruth. Uh, so many people know the story of Ruth and Boaz. The book of Ruth is one of the great love stories of all times. It is a romantic drama of a destitute young Moabite widow who marries a wealthy and compassionate Israelite named Boaz. Theologically, the story of Ruth and Boaz illustrates the biblical concept of redemption. So it talks about, uh, in chapter 1 through 22, Ruth's determination in, in this thing. Chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 23, is Ruth's devotion. 3 and 1 through 18 is Boaz's decision. And 4 and 1 through 22 was their family's destiny. We're going to go ahead and go to Esther. That was fast. Uh, anonymous, uh, who wrote Esther? An anonymous Persian Jew. Uh, some believe it's Mordecai. Uh, the recipients were the Jews of Diaspora. And this was written between 450 and 400 BC. And this is rescuing the people. It's going to be your point there. The book of Esther is a continuous story that contains six banquets and seven decrees. It begins with a crisis when Queen Vashti refuses to appear for her husband, King Ashurus, and embarrassed him before his government leaders. The story tells of Vashti's banishment and how a young Jewish girl was chosen to be the queen in her place. So the first section is about the danger to the Jews, uh, the demotion of Vashti. The story begins by describing how God providentially arranged for Vashti's dismissal as Xerxes' queen so that Esther, who would be the divine instrument of Jewish deliverance, could be elevated to that position in Vashti's place. The destiny of Esther. After an extensive search, Esther was elevated to the role of queen in the place of Vashti. However, her decision to hide her Jewish identity and take a pagan name was typically to outside of Israel. The decree against the Jews, despite Mordecai's intervention, intervention to foil an assassination plot against Xerxes, uh, Haman, the king's advisor, has to plot to eradicate the Jews. After Xerxes' promotion of Haman, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Consequently, Haman flew into a rage, culminating in his ambition to exterminate all of uh, decision of Esther, Mordecai <coughs> used his influence with Esther to convince her that she was the instrument God had chosen and strategically placed in a position of power to deliver the Jews during this dark hour. At this point, Esther made her courageous decision to risk her life to appeal to the king, saying, If I perish, I perish, and asked the Jews to fast and pray for God's protection. Deliverance of the Jews, the power of Mordecai was finally rewarded. Upon discovering in the king's chronicles that Mordecai's previous good deed on his behalf had gone unrewarded, Xerxes decided to reward Mordecai. The venture of Esther, the triumph of the Jews over Haman reaches its climax at Esther's second banquet when Xerxes asks Esther to state her one request. She reveals that Haman's plot was to eradicate the Jews and ask the king to spare her life and the lives of her people. The end result was that they needed Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Victory of the Jews. Because of the immutability of Persian law, Esther influences Xerxes to issue yet another decree, allowing the Jews to defend themselves against those who might try to attack them. And finally, the vindication of Mordecai. The book concludes with a reminder of the blessings or curses individuals experience when they bless or curse God's covenant people. When Haman was hung on his own gallows due to his ambition to destroy the Jews, Mordecai was elevated to second in command in the Persian Empire, so he, endured, he enjoyed the enduring respect of the Jews on account of his work on their behalf. In conclusion, the timing of God is seen, uh, is seen time and time again in the details of the story. These are not accidents of timing, but divine appointments which... Uh, the reader easily discerns the presence of Israel's unseen and unspoken God. We too must learn to trust God even when, when he seems silent. In reality, he is always working on us.
So I'm going to stop there for today. If you guys will just kind of go through this and maybe read a little bit of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles up until next Wednesday, we'll probably will not get back to those. Uh, so just take some time to do that. Remember to give your offering as you leave, and let's go to God in prayer with this word that was spoken. We'll continue with this. God, we love you tonight. We thank you for the word that you've given to us in this place. We thank you, God, for your love, for your kindness, God, for giving us this word that can lead us, God, when we don't know where to go in our time of, of, of misunderstanding and our time of deception across the world. God, your word remains true and remains holy. We ask, God, that this word would go with us, that it would lead us, guide us, and protect us, that it would bring us revelation, God, of who you are and your attributes and what you desire of your people. Let it give us the wisdom to live our lives. And let it just walk with you, God. I pray that you would touch every single one of these students, that you would walk with them, that your will would be made whole in their life. And we thank you for it. We give you all the praise and glory and all. In Jesus' name, amen.